Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today is an event in the making. Um, I've been trying to, to get this ex shroud expert on for a long time, uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Lavoie. How are you? Dale, it's great to be with you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on your show. This is a very nice experience. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Uh, uh, Dr. Lavoie, he is, uh, well, uh, I'm not going to spill the beans here. Why don't I, I turn it straight over to you as the guest to, do you want to kind of introduce the audience as to who you are, your, your background, um, how you got involved with the shroud? And if you don't mind, maybe share a little bit about your faith journey as well. Well, I, uh, I'm a physician, um, I'm boarded in a, a couple of fields, internal medicine, occupational medicine. I'm also in, uh, in the area of public health. I've had a wonderful run in, in that whole world of medicine. Uh, and uh, many years ago, actually, is about 45 years ago, uh, I got involved in the study of the Shroud of Turin. I have to say to you that when I began, it was a situation whereby I was somewhat of a skeptic. And uh, I had the opportunity, and I, uh, I actually read a uh, I started by reading a book called The Doctor of Calvary by Dr. Pierre Barbet, who is a, a French surgeon. And when I picked up the book, I thought it was really about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, however, as I started reading, I read for the first time that uh, about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, well, in 1978, when I was uh, early in my practice of medicine, I picked up the Boston Globe. And there on the front page of the Boston Globe, was a photograph of the Shroud of Turin, which I had read about in Dr. Barbet's book. And uh, I was fascinated by it and uh, talked to my wife. I said, well, the Shroud is going to be shown in 19, uh, this, this year. I said, what do you say we go to uh, Turin and see what this is about? And she was willing to do that. And so we packed our bags and we got to Turin. And uh, we had the wonderful opportunity meeting with Father Peter Rinaldi, who is really the back, uh, the, in the background in actually getting uh, what we know today as the STIRP group into Turin. It's a group of uh, wonderful uh, investigators from the United States that studied the Shroud uh, in 1978. Uh, Father Rinaldi was very kind and he got me to uh, meet with all of those gentlemen at that time, got me into the, um, uh, there was a, uh, an exhibit on the shroud at that time and I was there and also was able to take photographs of the shroud. So I, uh, it was a wonderful experience that Father Peter Rinaldi really helped me to have. When I got back home, again, I, as I mentioned, I uh, was somewhat of a skeptic, but I began to looking at, look at the blood marks and uh, all of a sudden one day I found a blood mark that no one really understood and discovered uh, for myself that indeed there was a crucified man under this cloth. And that's what really got me started. So uh, the rest is uh, uh, the work I've done over the, the many years. And, uh, and recently I've just published a, a new book on the shroud called The Shroud of Jesus and the sign John Ingeniously Concealed. And uh, that was uh, published in June of, uh, of this year by Sophia Institute Press. Uh, and what we're going to talk about, of course, are uh, 
the the work that I've done in that particular book is basically a, a summary of what uh, has happened over the last 45 years. It's a book on the medical and uh, scriptural st study of the Shroud of Turin. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent about, uh, actually, because I got so involved a year, I, I actually went to graduate school for two years in um, uh, the, the study of uh, the New and Old Testament. And then for about 10 years, I studied the Gospel of John intently. Uh, so the first 10 chapters are about the medical aspects of the shroud. The last six chapters are on the uh, Gospel of John. So that's sort of a, a thumbnail of uh, sort of what I've done and where I've been. And uh, so, uh, so let's, uh, let's go on. Awesome. And, and just uh, before, just a one quick follow-up. You mentioned you were a skeptic of the shroud. Um, what was your overall, if you're comfortable sharing, what was your overall worldview? Were you a Christian at the time or atheist? Or Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm a Catholic and I, uh, I'm a, I, I was a believer at that time. And I did not need the shroud for my faith at all. So the shroud was simply an object that I could look at, observe, and decide whether or not it was real. Uh, for the, because the last thing in the world that I would ever want to do is perpetrate a fraud. So I, uh, I really got into this. And uh, my faith, the fact that I had my faith, didn't need that for my faith at all. I, uh, I was very, very skeptical and, and wanted to be absolutely sure that what I did was, uh, if I, whatever came out and, <coughs> and, made, and said that the shroud was real, I'd have to be darn sure that I believed it fully 100%. And uh, after all these years, uh, I indeed do believe that this is indeed the shroud of Jesus. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, today, obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, one of your areas of expertise, the, the shroud from a medical and anatomical or forensic perspective. And just for the audience, uh, uh, Dr. Lavoie mentioned his book. Um, I'm going to include a link on my blog so you can get his book as well. Um, I checked out uh, a great debate that you had a long time ago with Dr. Walter McCrone, um, and you did a fantastic job on that debate. Um, I really think you did a good job. So I'm going to include the link for people of that debate as well. Uh, yeah, but sure. uh, yeah, with that said, <laughs> let's, let's get into today's topic. And the first thing I want to ask you about is obviously on the pro shroud side, um, what do we know about the Shroud Man from an anatomical perspective? What, what is it that convinces you as an expert that it, he is anatomically accurate? And is there anything we can know about that the body's position based on those accuracies? Well, I, um, I think well, as we start off, I would like to just do a, uh, show a, a couple of slides that I think would be important for those people who do, do not know what the Shroud is at all and that uh, happen and come to your podcast and so uh and then we'll 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 work in our way into that uh your question uh so here's the shroud uh it's uh what we have it's a cloth that's about 14 feet long three and a half feet wide and these uh strips so that you see uh all these uh lines that you see across in patches were a, a burn mark that took place burn i should say a fire took place in 1532 and uh, this 
this shroud was in a silver box and the box heated up so much that the some molten iron dripped down through the cloth and caused these burn marks. They are not of our, we're not interested in those burn marks. What we're really interested in is the very, the very faint image of the front and the back of a naked man. And upon that, and upon that uh, cloth, we also have uh, blood marks uh, that we can, uh, of, the, of, the, of the head that, that look like a punct bunch of many puncture wounds. We have blood mark at the wrist and at the feet. Uh, again, consistent with a, a man that was likely uh, <laughs> nailed to a cross. And then we have all through the body, many, many uh, wounds of scourging back and actually fr the front also. So, and then we finally have this uh, blood mark as, as if this man was uh, stabbed in the chest, speared in the chest. So what we have on this cloth are two events. One of them are blood marks, uh, the blood marks of a man who uh, died in the very same manner as we read about in the Gospel of John. Whatever John says about uh, the, the, the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, we find on the shroud, and whatever's on the shroud, we find in the Gospel of John. From a forensic point of view, that makes us very suspicious that this that the Gospel writer actually uh, was there and saw, likely saw this cloth as well. Um, so uh, the uh, fascinating thing about this cloth is the fact that uh, uh, it, we, we, this is all we saw for uh, almost 2,000 years. But in 1898, the very first time the shroud was uh, uh, photographed, uh, it was done by Secunda Pia, when he went to, he took it the photograph. He had a great large camera, and when he <clears throat> he went to his dark room, he looked at his negative plate as it was uh, being. Uh, well, actually, what he saw. This is what he saw in his negative plate. He saw the real, the positive image of a man, and that was uh, quite remarkable. He he believed that he was really seeing for the first time the face of Jesus, uh, and. Uh, it really, uh, you can tell how remarkable it is. And he didn't understand why this was occurring, but then as he thought about it, he realized what we have on the shroud, the original shroud is actually a negative and the, uh, and the, the negative plate, he has a positive image. And it's very interesting because uh, we have a negative on the original shroud, but we have positive blood marks. You can see them, they're, they're just, deposited on there, but on the uh, negative plate, we have a positive man and we have negative blood marks. So this is really uh, quite a quite a phenomena. And this phenomena brought people all around the world to start scientists to start studying the shroud. So the study of the shroud scientifically began in 1898. Um, and I just have to say one one thing about the, uh, the shroud itself, as far as the image is concerned, the blood marks, uh, uh, the blood marks are blood marks. Uh, we can discuss that a little further as we go along. But the uh, the image itself, there's basically two events. Again, so again, there's the blood marks, and then there's the uh, <clears throat> the image itself. In the image itself, this is a 
uh, a slide that shows the image uh, at 64 times magnification at the at an area over the nose. And you can see here are the threads. And, of, and these threads are made up of very tiny fibers. And these fibers are less than half the hair, half, half the diameter of the hairs on your head, way less than that, uh, actually about 15 microns. And uh, so it is the yellowing of these individual fibers that are responsible for the coloring of the, of, for the image. And uh, if you go down and you go underneath one of these threads, you find that it turns exact, it turns white right away. And if you uh, take a pin and start pushing these fibers around, you find that the fiber only goes one fiber deep, uh, and which is a, a, an incredible phenomena. And it and the means that no uh, liquid or dye or stain could have caused this because if it had, we would have the a wicking that would go down underneath the next thread. We have no none of that. And we would and we would have uh, uh, the <clears throat> the fibers below the topmost fibers uh, also uh, stained. However, we don't. It's only the topmost fiber. And this phenomena uh, has uh, never been uh, the the shroud itself has never been reproduced uh, at the microscopic level. You may hear all these people talking about reproducing the shroud, but in reality, it's never been. Re been reproduced at the microscopic level. And what what it is, is the these fibers are actually, they're next to, uh, the colored fibers are next to the white fibers. And this, the whole idea is here, how does, in most of these fibers are actually of the same uh, density, color. Uh, and uh, so what, the reason why we see the image is that in certain parts of the, of the, uh, image, you'll have more, more of these fibers. In other parts, there'll be less. It's like uh, print. Uh, if you want to make an area darker, you put in more dots If you and so forth. So this is an amazing phenomenon and has never been reproduced uh, even during our uh, most modern technological <coughs> time. So anyway, that's our, uh, that's our uh, work on... Uh, gives you a little bit of a background for all of those who don't uh, have any idea about the shroud and why it's so unique. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So um, I think uh, you still got your slides up there. So let's transition into looking at the shroud from that medical perspective. And I really want to know what is the pro shroud case? How, how do experts like yourself determine Dr. Lavoie that the shroudman is indeed anatomically accurate and I know that you yourself, you have kind of a, a unique or a, a different position compared to other pro shrouds uh, scientists regarding the position of the body based on these um, anatomical findings. Yeah, I think first of all, we well, let's start with this with the concept of the big question is people ask, you know, is this truly a crucified man? That's always been, and I'll we'll start from that and, and we'll talk about the position. Uh, from the from the point of view, was he was he in, in the crucified position? Was there really a man that was laid underneath this cloth? Uh, and then we'll get to some of the the more unique uh, uh, observations that I've made that uh, that you just referred to. So, if I may, I'd like to uh, 
look at the uh, image, uh, help help us understand that was this man truly crucified? Uh, what position was he in when he was uh, uh, when he died? What position was he in when he was buried, etc.? I think those are those are we should start there. Uh, now I'm talking here to you about an off-image blood mark. You see this? You see how the um, the blood comes down here, down the wrist, and down pours down here right off the image and turn comes into a sort of a round spot. Uh, and uh, this is the actual. This particular off-image blood mark is what I did not understand, and I, at the time, no one really understood why. I asked everybody, the experts and so forth, at the time in 1978, no one understood why that off-image blood mark was there. So I studied that for a period of time, and uh, here's a here's a blow-up of that very same thing. You see how it comes right here, and it actually ends in a round spot. So I studied that and uh, and actually really couldn't come to any definite conclusion until one day I decided I, I had a, a full-size shroud image in my home. It was given to me by a, a colleague of mine who let me borrow it. And I placed the, uh, the, the, the full shroud image over my body, the frontal image. And what I discovered just blew my mind because then I realized how this this blood mark got to be off image. And, uh, and I'm gonna share that with you now. So this is the blood mark. And what we've done is uh, we the next slide is gonna show you a transparency that was uh, drawn. We took a transparent paper and we just drew this out just exactly the way it is on the full size shroud. And then the next thing we did is uh, placed it over a man's body. And we see that when we look at this is the front, the chest and so forth, the hands and whatever, he's, this gentleman is lying on his back. And you see, when you look at the photograph, you, you lose the, the off image blood mark here. You don't see it. You just come, you see it go right down and it stops. And so what's happened to that? And where does that come from if we take the next picture and we see from a side view what really is going on is that as the cloth was placed over the body and the moist clots that were on the body then soaked into the cloth we see that it the that this uh uh this cloth drapes over the side of the back of the arm of the individual who's under it so it just wrapped around the side of the body and picked up that blood mark uh, because it the the moist the moist the, <clears throat> the blood was moist and it just picked it right up. So that's what we see. That's how it got on there. In other words, that a man, a three-dimensional man, was draped uh, by this cloth. Uh, and how did that particular blood mark get there? If we sort of look at this, and we um, we're, we're, we're this is uh, we, uh, basically the cloth with uh, this paper was raped, just wrapped around his arm. I'm not saying that this is how it. Uh, I'm just showing you here that uh, a schematic here that shows you how this blood mark got there. So he had a wound at his wrist, 
and the blood flowed down his wrist all around and then it got it then it got to his by his elbow and then underneath his arm and then pooled here and then dropped to the ground drops were coming from the ground uh this is uh most of us we see you know when you uh, uh for the guys out there who are shaving uh every day you have you know your hand gets wet water drips down your arm goes by your elbow and, and drips down to the ground. Everybody feels that. And let's say you're washing dishes and whatever, and your hands are wet, and you you hold up your hands, and you say, can you give me a towel? You can feel that water dripping down and going under the back of your arm and then dripping to the floor. So this is a real phenomena that we all experience. More than that, um, uh, when we read the Mishnah, which is an ancient text, a Jewish text, um, that uh, describes crucifixions, they talk about blood gushing from the crucified or blood dripping from the crucified. And that's exactly what we have. We have blood dripping from the crucified. And that, in this case, it's the body of the blood dripping from the body of Jesus. So, um, so what do we learn from all of that? Uh, well, we learned some, we learned quite a bit. We, we realize that, first of all, the man of the shroud died in a crucified position because that's, we see that, that has, in order for that blood mark to get where it was, the arm had to be vertical. Uh, actually, uh, uh, the, the, uh, when we talk about, here, here's the blood mark again, when we look at the, the shroud cloth, this looks like it's on his left elbow, but actually, uh, the, it's really on his right elbow. Uh, the shroud is a mirror image of the man. So anyway, the, the right arm would have been uh, actually perpendic practically perpendicular to the cross and the left, uh, 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 and the, actually the other arm actually would be sort of in the typical position that we think about of a crucified man, like 60 degrees from the vertical. Uh, and actually, Bar this is exactly what we have here. This is another blood mark. This, this blood mark was studied by Dr. Barbet, uh, and he realized that this blood mark shows that this arm was 60 degrees from the vertical, and that would be, the, that would be indeed the case in a crucified position. This particular blood mark shows that the other arm was actually uh, in the uh, more of a vertical position. So basically, uh, one arm is stretched out in a uh, as if he's on a cross, and the other arm is bent, uh, and so that the blood just goes from the wrist down around the back of the arm. Why is that happening, uh, and why do we see a, a person in that position? Uh, it's very interesting. Um, uh, that that that's a position that I predicted that the body would be in, uh, and the reason being uh, that, that that's happened is that, uh, the, when you look at the, uh, actually the, it's his, uh, this, you see the left foot, uh, let me, let me put it this way. His, yeah, left foot was actually over his right foot uh, when he was nailed. One foot was over the other. And so when he pushed down, he actually pushed his body over in the other direction. Uh, it's very interesting because uh, many years later, 
um, I we did a study. Uh, actually, uh, John Jackson had asked me to help him out with regard to some the blood work and the position of a man who's crucified. And so he and I got together and uh, we had, there were volunteers there. It was a wonderful experience. And I uh, always appreciate the fact that John asked me to do that. So we worked together and uh, found, uh, I brought uh, with me uh, normal saline and so forth. And uh, in other words, to reproduce these kind of blood marks on a man that would have been uh, crucified. So actually we had a couple of volunteers and uh, we used leather straps to um, uh, on their wrist with swivels uh, to to hang them from a cross. And uh, and I asked John if he would mind uh, actually putting a swivel on the uh, the lower uh, the feet the wound at the feet, and which he he thought that was a great idea. So we did that. And uh, when we placed the person up on the cross. Uh, it was interesting because John and I were discussing uh, what I thought um, and what he thought may be the position that the body would go into. And then we went, and then finally John said, well, why don't we put him up there and see what happens? I said, sure. So we did. And uh, the individual actually balanced himself on, on, the, uh, on the swivel of it that was at his feet. And then finally in one split second, Bango, he his whole body turns uh, over to the uh, to his uh, uh, right side, and uh, just as we had predicted, and uh, it was really funny. I was it's was funny afterwards, but uh, when he uh, when he did that, I asked him. I said, "Did you hear what we were talking about? Did you hear that we thought the body would your body would go in that direction?" He said, "And the poor fellow." blurted back, he says, no, I, I, I couldn't help this. You know, in other words, he basically fell in that position. So we were so, uh, it was such an, an amazing phenomenon to see what Christ would have look, looked like at that point and that the, uh, what we see in the blood marks actually represent exactly the position that his body was in, that we sort of stopped the whole procedure for uh, probably about 15 minutes, got the fellow down and, uh, we just sort of sat around in amazement that what we just saw was something that uh, took place 2000 years ago. So the body indeed, these blood marks shows the body indeed was in the position of crucifixion. And after these 45 years, uh, uh, the one thing that has never had, and the, the one question has never been asked of me after my talk is that was this man, do you really believe this man was crucified? Uh, that never, that question has never been asked because the forensics are so powerful, telling us that the the man of the shroud definitely was died in a crucified position. The other thing that uh, this uh, information tells us is that it just tells us for sure these blood marks were made by a contact process. In other words, blood just soaked right into the cloth, and that's uh, and that basically is just a natural phenomena. Uh, nothing uh, supernatural about that. Um, the cloth, uh, the other thing is that uh, we notice here that the blood marks are, uh, all the blood marks are basically on the body, uh, but this blood mark is off the body. And this shows that the man was, the, the 
the cloth draped around a three-dimensional man. So we know that this man was actually, the cloth covered a three-dimensional supine body. The man was taken down from the cross and he was then laid on his back on one end of this cloth and the other one was placed over his body and, and wrapped around his body. So we have definitely, this is proof that there was a three-dimensional man under this cloth. Um, and then we have another piece of information that tells us all of these blood marks are actually on the body, but this is off the body. Yet we know that this, this, this cloth touched the back of the upper man uh, of the man's arm, his the back of his arm. We know that because the blood mark is there. Therefore, if we uh, so if we look at this, we see that the uh, the image is here. Uh, so the contact, the blood marks are a contact process. However, the image is not a contact process because if it were a contact process, we would have the we would be seeing the back of the upper arm right here, but we do not see that. So it is definitely not a contact process. Many people have said, well, it's organic matter that's on the body that caused this image. That's not the case. Because if it were organic matter that caused the image, we would definitely have the back of the upper arm here. So basically we see that this image is uh, more of an image of intent than, than of accident. Because if it were, uh, and I'll get into that in, in a moment. Yes, uh, now the question is, is uh, the image, a, we know that the blood marks are a natural event, but we can see from this, this information here also tells us that the image is not the result of a natural event. Because if it were, uh, we would have, when, when you have a natural event, it's usually ubiquitous. Whatever happens in one place will happen in another place. Uh, and here we don't have, uh, we don't, here we don't have the an image, therefore uh, this is this is not a natural event because if it were, we would also we would also have uh, the back of the arm show, shown here. It's now, rather uh, Doctor Lavoie. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, I have a follow up question about something you were saying. Do you want me to wait until you're finished your presentation to ask it, or do you want me to okay, just say no? Uh, uh, Okay, so I'll just say one more thing, and then you certainly. But what it is here is that uh, this is more. It seems to be more of an event, uh, an intentional event, not a natural event. Okay, go ahead. Ask my ask. Go ahead. Whatever yes, question. Uh, so, so sorry, this isn't a, a question on the list, but it is in response to something that you were saying about how the blood stains are definitely uh, naturally explained through contact. Now. I myself have disagreed with that. And the reason, uh, so I want to get your take on, on this. Um, the sure. reason I've, I've disagreed is there are certain blood stains that um, are, are on the shroud that wouldn't be in contact with just a, a naturally draped cloth uh, on a body. It would take some kind of pressure to press the cloth to those blood marks. And if that was the case, wouldn't there be smearing or some kind of alteration of those blood stains? Uh, so it seems like those can't be contact. But what, what's your expert opinion on that, Dr. Lavoie? Okay, I, I think that, you know, the way you're talking about it, it certainly seems uh, rational, what you're saying, that certain 
blood marks or uh, why are they all, you know, why do we see them so well? And uh, how is it that, uh, you know, some of these things are not smeared and so forth as you move the, in, in other words, you're talking about basically uh, if you move the body and you carry the, you know, you put the cloth on and then you, you want to carry the body across to the, to the grave or whatever, uh, how, uh, how come there's no smearing? Is that right? Is that your question? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So there's no smearing. Okay. Now that's, that's a very good question. And, uh, and I think I hopefully can answer your, your question. What it is, is this, is that, um, First of all, uh, I think it's very important to understand something. I spent uh, uh, at least a year, year and a half, studying before I I got involved with a lot of a lot of this. I wanted to know how the Jews buried their dead. Okay, mm -hmm. so I spent about a year and a half. My wife helped me out, and we uh, did a, a study uh, looking into how the Jews actually buried their dead. So, uh, the, the, and, and at the time I did this study, this was, a, this was the situation. There was a big argument with regard to uh, whether or not the body of, the, of Jesus was washed or not washed and so forth. Uh, so because we know that in the Mishnah, it states that uh, Jesus, I mean, uh, that when a man dies, uh, his body is washed, and then he's then he's wrapped in a sheet. Uh, so uh, there was the, a whole group of people that said this can't be the body of Jesus because it actually is um, uh, the body. His body was washed. We know, his, and so therefore, because it, that's the Jewish custom, and John states that he was buried according to the Jewish custom in the Gospel of John. So therefore. This can't be the body of Jesus because he got blood on the body. Then there was the other camp that said, "Oh well, he was buried almost according to the to the to the Jewish custom. However, because the Sabbath was imminent, they didn't have time to wash the body. Uh, so therefore, uh, they just wrapped him in a and didn't have time to do the washing that's normally done." However, in our study, we made a wonderful, exciting discovery that there was an exception to washing the body. And the exception to washing the body uh, was this, that if a man dies a violent death, the blood is not washed from the body, but must remain on the body. Uh, the Jews were very, the Jewish people then and today, are certainly Orthodox Jews today, as well as then, are very concerned about the blood that flows at the time of death. Now, they quantitate it and they qualitate it. And in, um, in quantitating it, in qualitating it, the blood has to flow at the time of death. And that's what we see here on the body of this man, the blood that flowed at the time of death. Uh, the other blood that is there, uh, the, uh, he'd been on a cross for... Uh, for hours and uh, a lot of that blood has dried except for the scourge marks scourge marks are different they're excoriations uh and they sort of ooze like you're sort of remember when you were a kid and you scraped your knee and how it would ooze for a long time uh -huh. it just 
it didn't, you know, it didn't just dry up. It kept oozing and oozing. That's what we have with excoriations on the, on the body with regard to the scourge marks. But the other blood that flows, and that dried very quickly. And then, so what we have there are only the very last blood flows, literally the blood that flowed at the time of death. Now, they so that's the quality of what they called life blood. And if the blood is actually, the blood <clears throat> is, once the blood, uh, so, so what we have is dried blood on the, claw, on the body that we don't see at all because it's dried. And then we have the moist blood that we see because it could be, uh, once the cloth uh, is placed on it, it just soaks up into the cloth. So what, so the, 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 the other thing they did is the amount of blood that had to flow to become life blood. And that had to be at least what they call a quarter of a log of blood. Now, a log of blood is the contents of six eggs, but a quarter of a log of blood is, a con is an egg and a half, which is literally a small cup of wine, like a small cup of wine, okay? Very interesting. Uh, so um, very interesting from the point of view of the Last Supper, et cetera. But anyway, uh, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, so it turns out that uh, what we have here uh, is blood that is moist. Uh, and what happens when you, when you, uh, the timing is very interesting. When you uh, place a cloth onto, onto blood or water and so forth, it soaks up very rapidly, okay? It's not something that takes a long time. It's just a matter with within 20 seconds or so. I mean, you've got it. It's soaked. Definitely. It's really soaked in there. Uh, and uh, and so what happens is that you basically have soaked all that all that moisture into the cloth. And uh, there's little there's not that much moisture left on the body because you just soaked it into the cloth. So once you once that happens, uh, there's, there's, when you start, uh, after several minutes or whatever, uh, you're certainly not going to have a lot of smearing because most of that blood is already soaked into the cloth. Do you, do you understand what I'm, where I'm going with this? Yep. Yep. Making sense. Okay. So, so it's not, it's not a matter of thinking that that, that, that there's moisture all over that body, uh, for 10 or 20 minutes, uh, it's not because it's soaked into the into the cloth. Okay, so there's not much chance for smearing because once it soaks in, it's soaked in. That's it. So that's what that's the reason why uh, you don't have a lot of smearing. Uh, the other thing that's the reason why you don't have a lot of smearing is because um, the Jews uh, then and now. Are very like I said, are very concerned about the blood. So when they took the body down from the cross, uh, in the normal situation, if you didn't have people like that that were concerned about life's blood, you would have smearing all over the place. But because nobody would care about about these blood clots, you see, or the moist blood, they wouldn't care about it at all. They wouldn't care about life's blood. So you'd have all kinds of smearing. But this body shows a man whose blood marks have not been disturbed. So this was this body had to have been taken down very, very carefully, not to deserve, disturb any of these clots. And the only people on earth that would be interested in doing that would be the Jews. And so this really, the fact that these blood marks are not disturbed, 
tells us that this is very likely a Jewish burial. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and, and you can, all these details, I mean, we're, I'm just covering some of them, can be found in my book, The Shroud of Jesus. Uh, which and uh, and uh, so if anybody's interested, they can go to all the uh, and find all that and all the references and so forth related to what I've just spoken about. So basically, the cloth soaks that blood up, and there's not any smearing. And I think you know the body was really, you know, placed in. They were again, they were very concerned. They they didn't want to smear the body. They placed it and they they covered that body very carefully. Uh, I think it's more than more than just a, a simple drape, uh, and uh, and then be, uh, and then they so that nothing would be moved from from the body because they're very concerned about that blood, that life's blood that must stay with the body. Okay, does that help yep. you? Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for for that. And yeah, uh, go ahead and finish your your uh, presentation on the first question. And yep, let me. Yeah. So anyway, we're uh, uh, so are we convinced? Are you convinced that this man died in the upright position and then was laid out or not? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, Dr. Lavoie asked me that uh, privately and I, 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 I should have said that I do agree with you based on these blood. I think these blood flows did uh, form when he was in the upright position on that cross. So I'm I'm definitely convinced on that front um, that these blood flows I think I would kind of go for a partial washing is the view that I would have taken. But uh, other than that, yeah, I'm convinced by the the evidence of the blood flows that you're laying down here. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't they do they wouldn't wash the body. I mean, that's in other words, what John said uh, that Jesus was buried according to the Jewish custom. That was the Jewish custom not to wash the body of a man who died a violent death. And you can find that very. If you start, if you think this body was washed, this is there. This is not the body of Jesus, because that body, Jesus's body, was not washed. Because the custom was definitely not to wash the blood off of the man who died of a violent death. There's no washing. All right. Okay. And, awesome. Yeah. There's no washing. If you, you, some people, I, I've heard this over and over again. People say, oh. Well, I think he was partially washed. And they go into all these assumptions. You can't make assumptions when you study the shroud. Once you start making assumptions, you're making mistakes. And uh, if this is the body of Jesus, that body was definitely not washed. And I see no signs anywhere that this body was washed. I'm not kidding. That's, I think that should be just, just not the case. Okay. All right. Cool. Awesome. Well, well, let me kind of change gears here then, because you, you've been kind of laying out the pro shroud side, why medically you think this is authentic. This is a man that was indeed crucified, but there are the shroud skeptics on the other hand, who will point to certain anatomical inaccuracies about the shroud man, you know, things about the arm being too long and, and wouldn't be able to cover the crotch if it was real um the fingers are too long you know the face is too narrow stuff of this nature so what's kind of your take on these anatomical inaccuracies that skeptics allege disprove this as a, a real person good well as uh, as we talked about before i i do want to address those and i and but i'll start first you also asked about the the blood marks itself and i thought you know that there's that people say they're inaccurate and so forth. So we'll start with the blood marks and then we'll go to the, 
what you've just mentioned about the, the arms and fingers and so forth. Cool. Uh, so the blood marks, uh, can you see my pointer here? Yep. On this? Okay. So the blood mark or the wound here at the side, uh, I think you mentioned to me uh, in private that uh, there was a, some group that was, uh, Blaze said, the, the blood should really just flow all the way down the body. They did their little experiment and they said the body should, the blood should flow down the body. But uh, in, 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 in reality, uh, that's not the case. Uh, when we had the uh, uh, volunteers in a crucified position, there were actually two positions that he was in. The position which I call the position of agony and the position of death. A uh, position of agony, uh, a person in, uh, that's being crucified, he has to, um, if he doesn't um, push up on his feet, and push his body upward uh, to uh, take relief off his arms, uh, his, uh, uh, his breathing, uh, in other words, he just hangs from his arms. He can't last very long uh, just hanging from his arms. And there were studies that have been done uh, by other people that show that if somebody just hangs from their arms, their blood pressure starts dropping, their, uh, their oxygen levels drop, and uh, their pulse rate goes up very, very, very high, and they're not long for this world So, uh, because of uh, hypoxia. And so what they have, what a person does in a crucified position, he has to have uh, push himself up to relieve the, his arms, his chest, so he can breathe his, uh, better. Uh, and, and so it's what happens to the crucified man. He's a man who is struggling uh, between uh, pushing himself up and then exhaustion of his legs. And so then he lets himself down and he uh, hangs from his arms for a short period of time to rest his body. And then again, he, uh, he's, his, he starts to fade out. So then he pushes himself up. So it's an agony of pushing yourself up and to, to stay alive. And then you get exhausted in your arms and you, you hold your arms. And finally, at death comes when you finally... You're, you're, you finally are totally exhausted. You cannot push yourself up anymore. You just hang from your arms, and then finally you, you expire from, high, from uh, lack of, uh, of oxygen uh, and so forth. Uh, so in the case of, uh, and, that's, and, and we know in the biblically that uh, when they wanted to get the, there were three people that were crucified, one that day, Jesus and two others, when they went to the two others, they actually broke their legs. And the reason they broke their legs was to uh, uh, so that they couldn't push themselves up anymore. So once they couldn't push themselves up anymore, they would quickly die. Um, so uh, that gives you an idea of the to and fro movement. Um, from, from the point of view of the position, when a person is pushing themselves up, they're in one position, they push them. They come down there in another. Uh, when it comes to this uh, wound on the side, he was in the death position, and his body was so angled that the when the uh, and actually I put uh, we put uh, I, I as I mentioned to you I brought IV fluid with me and we put actually uh, fluid at at this position that would pour out at this position, and when the person was in the position of death. The blood would actually flowed right, right down, and then because of the position of the body, 
it flowed right off the body to the floor. So it so this particular uh, flow as we see it doesn't go all the way down the body because the body is so positioned that the blood just literally flowed to this point and then dropped to the floor. Okay, you, you see where I'm going? You understand? Does that yep. make it clear? Yeah. So yep. it dropped to the floor. So this is correct. So this, this what we see as this blood mark is absolutely correct. It's uh, now as far as the the swiggly back and forth, you know, you talk about artists, they'll just have a, a blood flow to go nice and straight down the arm or something, down the arms like that. But we don't see that. We see this sort of zigzag situation. And again, we had, I, I, we did, I had a, a, a blood flow, which was a water, a colored water, actually colored red water from the IV solutions that I put up uh, so that when the person was in the crucified position and he was moving back and forth, you know, pushing his up, feet up and coming down, that kind of movement, this caused this zigzaggy position, what we saw in the arms. So this is correct as well. So this is not what the artists do, but this is what really happens in real life, the zigzaggy situation. Uh, so the, as far as the blood flows are concerned, they're consistent with a man who's dying in a crucified position. Uh, now, let's get to some of the anatomy. Um, you see uh, here, uh, you mentioned to me earlier about a very, people say, well, this face is too thin. Well, yes, it, it, it does look very thin. It looks very gaunt. And part of the reason uh, that it's gaunt, and let me just say to you that in, in the work that I've done, we've also, uh, created a i spent three and a half years uh with a with a, a professional uh sculpture uh an, an internationally known sculpture uh sculptor uh pablo eduardo and uh we worked together uh to uh, replicate what we see here on the shroud from an anatomical uh point of view and uh as we did this uh, you know, we had, see how the hair just sort of flows down like that, and then you see the face. But what we realized as we did that, uh, uh, that you get basically uh, uh, on the work we did, uh, as the hair comes out this way, uh, you see that these are really shadows that are on both sides of the face. And you actually see that anatomically when you create the image and trying to reproduce the image. So uh, the, the face is the face is actually um, the face is there, but it's it's in the dark and it's in a, it's a dark area. So therefore, it's light and we we lose the, the the rest of the sides of the face. So the face is actually there. And so this is perfectly consistent with a reality. Uh, now, let's talk about the uh, uh, the fingers. Uh, the fingers are. Uh, uh, are, are not abnormally long. Nothing, there's nothing abnormal about these fingers uh, with regard to the length. They're perfectly fine. Uh, they, they correspond to uh, uh, fingers of, of people with long, that have fingers that are, that are long fingers. I mean, he's, this is, uh, and he has long arms as well. Uh, uh, but uh, some basket, you know, you talk about basketball players. Some basketball players have longer arms than others. They have an advantage when they're playing basketball. Uh, people have some people have longer arms than others. 
For example, my mother-in-law had very long arms and she could uh, literally uh, do uh, bend over and, and some people can just touch the tips of their fingers on the floor uh, with, with bending their back over standing and bending over to touch the floor. Most of us can't even do that. We can't even touch the floor with our fingers, but she could touch the floor, not only with her fingers, but with her whole hand. Her whole hand would be flat on the floor because her arms were long. So anatomically, uh, all over the place, my wife has a, a very, uh, like her mother, but not quite as long, uh, has long arms. So it's, it's, uh, this is nothing uh, unusual. This is fine. Uh, from the point of view of, we, uh, it's been for years, uh, people have said that, well, the, uh, well, in this case, we'll just look at it. This, this arm, we'll, we'll call it right now the left arm, uh, is much longer than the right arm. And so people have said, well, uh, he hammered, he was a carpenter and he used his left arm to, and he, he or, or it would actually be his right arm. All, all kinds of assumptions people made. But the reality of it is disease, both of these arms are the same length. And I did a study, I don't have it in my, my later book, but uh, in my last book, but in an earlier book, I did a study and it showed uh, we did we did very careful measurements, and you see here that really what's happened is uh, you study this area very very well of of this. Well, we'll say the right arm here because we're it looks like the right arm, uh, his right arm, but it's his left. But you see the fingers actually curl around the hand here, yeah. and this this wrist is actually. Uh, 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 not uh, something subtle here, but you just sort of see it this way. And that means that the wrist is bent up. His wrist is bent upward, slightly bent up. So you lose at least three inches, uh, three inches of, of distance between here and here compared to here and there. Three inches are lost. That gives you the impression it's an optical illusion that you think that one arm is longer than the other. It's not. They're both the same length. I hope that helps you. With the, Absolutely. With yeah. Yeah. Um, just a couple things I wanted to add. One thing I just want to add as well is uh, from the position of a skeptic, what one of the other quote unquote anatomical inaccuracies, if, if you look at the shroud man's thighs, his uh, left, uh, which because it's a photo negative, it's actually his right, but we'll just call it his left leg is fatter than his right thigh. And but that's something that's obvious, like an artist wouldn't make that mistake. Right. So I. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I love that. I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, this is very exciting to me because this we had this situation when we were recreating this, uh, uh, the image on here, the, the artist and myself. And I, I see exactly what you're saying. It looks like the left side is bigger than the right, right? Yeah. The thigh. Yeah. Now, it's very interesting. <laughs> we did, we did, uh, uh, again, it's all to do with reality. And this was really a puzzle that we had. But uh, we, let me put it this way. As we were doing and putting the arms and whatever, I got, I got this feeling that, 
we placed the arms in the wrong in the wrong place. You know, I all of a sudden I said, oh, my gosh. I mean, not that the arms are perfect. They're not. And nothing's perfect. When you try to do an, an anatomical, uh, it's very, very difficult. You think you're doing something right, and everything is perfect, but it's not. So we have something that's very close to what is there, but it's nothing's nothing's perfect. It never is. But it's very close. And the idea is this. What we what, I thought that we had put these in the wrong position and I called him up and I said, let's measure these again. We were constantly measuring, uh, measuring, measuring, measuring all the time, measuring the image, measuring blood marks, using blood marks to tell us where the, the body was. I mean, the, 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 where the, what the position of the body was and all. And finally we, uh, I said to him, uh, so he said, the measurements are all right. I've measured again. And so we were on the phone. And I said, you know what this is? I said, this is what we're seeing here, right here. And you see how it ends here? And you get all this extra and you're saying, well, it's too, this is much bigger than that. And you're right, it is. And what it is, is that the this area that you're seeing here is predominantly the quadriceps muscle, which is very much uh, uh, out. In other words, it's, if you... If you if you make make a muscle of your quadriceps, it it comes out from the bot from your body, and you can feel it. It has a certain meaty position, okay, that you can feel, because it's like it's like taking your biceps and making your biceps, you know, uh, showing showing your muscle. Here's my muscle, kind of thing, you know. That's what you have here on this on this leg. It's like showing the muscle of the biceps, and so this actually these fingers end up. At the, at the biceps as you make the muscle, okay? And the rest of that area out here has, we don't see the image out here, but it's, the body is definitely out there. We're just not seeing it. So we're not getting all of the image here. That's, that's as simple as it, that's as simple as it gets. This, this arm, this leg, um, uh, this biceps is right way out. This is not this is not as far out at all, and uh, because this this leg, this foot is on top of this foot is on this is the the, the uh, yeah this anyway we're seeing this particular muscle is really taut like you'd say you show your biceps okay and therefore that's where it ends right there and the rest of it is is right by here but we you know, we can hardly see it so it's not a it's it's not an artistic problem it's an anatomical situation due to the body and, and it's it's musculature and whatever so it's not a problem awesome all right cool so i, I have uh two two follow-up questions based on your presentation so the the one other thing i wanted to ask you about um get dr lavoy given your expertise here are you aware there was a recently a paper a few years back um, a computerized anthropometric study that found the shroud man was anatomically accurate. Uh, what's your thoughts on those sort of computer studies? If uh, well, I, I'm, I, well, I, I think the body is anatomically accurate. I mean, from the study I did and the work we did together with uh, my, I had a, the work, the man I worked with was a master of, uh, of art anatomy. He, uh, he worked with cadavers as I work with cadavers, 
and uh, he understood the, the human body. He didn't see any problem with this body, and neither do I, for anatomically. Awesome. All right. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I, I noticed that you mentioned um, and that uh, the crucified man, he died, the shroud man, he died by asphyxiation. That's how you die on the cross. And you've done experiments. Um, I've had uh, Dr. Joseph Berger on. I don't know. Well, if you before know. you go on, sure. I, I talk about people usually dying from just asphyxiation. Well, we all die from asphyxiation from one way or another. But but it's fixed, but Jesus died. Uh, he died more quickly than the rest of the men that were there. Uh, so and uh, he died uh, also when he was speared. He had water uh, and blood that came out of his chest, uh, as as uh, as we read about in the Gospel of John. And we have proof that we also have water that came out of this man's chest. Because when we look at the very back of the man of the shroud, we see what looks like a mixture of blood and water. It's not pure blood. It's, it's a mixture of what looks like blood and water. So that would be uh, basically plural fluid, and which looks like water. If you were with me in a, uh, and you followed me uh, and somebody is in congestive heart failure, you're on a respirator or something, and you put a tube uh, down into their lungs, and, and suck it out, it'll look, what comes out looks just like water. So uh, when somebody's in heart failure, uh, the we have, and I'm not the only one, there's, there's others that feel the same way, other physicians that I've known uh, that are of the same uh, ilk, is that uh, the man, because the fluid came out of his chest, uh, and this is, a, so it's all in my book, you, uh, The Shroud of Jesus, I can't get into to all these details, but but basically he died in congestive heart failure. Uh, he had a he had a, he had a lot of loss of blood because of the uh, the um, the crowning of thorns. Blood uh, from vascular uh, the vascularization of the scalp is enormous, and when you have I've seen it come people come in an emergency room they just have a small little laceration of their head and they they have blood all over their body. Uh, so the bleeding, come, the, the amount of bleeding that this man had from his head, from all these num numerous puncture wounds, was enormous. His body was basically covered with blood, and he uh, uh, lost a tremendous amount of blood through that. Plus, uh, he lost a tremendous amount of fluid because of the e enormous beating that he had, the, the scourge marks and so forth, caused all that fluid. If you, I worked in a burn unit, and what happens when you injure skin and whatever, the fluid from the rest of the, the vasculature, uh, it comes out and goes in, pours into these areas of injury. And so uh, his whole body was scourged, and a lot of that fluid came in. So he was actually, while he was walking to, uh, we, we read about in the gospel and one of the uh, synoptics that uh, he needed help because he was uh, not able to carry that uh the part of the cross uh, on him, and he was uh, falling. And uh, therefore, he needed help to get to the, to get to crucifix, to get to the, uh, the place of crucifixion. That's not because they were nice guys, but because they didn't want him to die before he got there. And they wanted to be sure they would crucify him and carry out the, the full, the full uh, death sentence. So um, uh, anyway.
Um, yeah, cool. yeah I, I just wanted to very quickly kind of ask, let me just share my screen for sure a second for the audience. But um, yeah, I, I noticed that there's a paper, there's a lot of um, experts who agree with you uh, on this. He died by asphyxiation. There are some experts who take different views. They'll, there's they'll a difference. I, I, wait a minute now. Asphyxiation is just dying from lack of oxygen, which everybody literally dies. When you go into congestive heart failure, you end up dying from lack of oxygen. However, when you when you go, but the yeah. but the other people that died from crucifixion, they die from uh, asphyxiation because of total body exhaustion. Okay. But Jesus, did, he, he never got to that point. His, but he died because he was in congestive heart failure. And, the, the, of course, that's a, another means of asphyxiation. But it's heart failure that caused him to die quickly rather than linger on like the others would have lingered on if they hadn't had their, their legs broken. Okay? I just want to make that distinction. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I just want, kind of wanted to get, get your take on... Um, some others who, who say he died by shock or some say he died by co coagulopathy. I, I don't know what that is and stuff or suspension. So there are d different views. So I was just kind of curious um, on your, your sort of take. Well, he was, well, there's no question. I mean, he was in shock. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, he was in shock prior to, to going into congestive heart failure. I mean, he lost all his blood. So shock talks about, you know the blood, the blood pressure dropping, and so forth, and and then he had a very high, uh, very uh, fast heart rate, and mm -hmm. so his heart rate was enormously fast. And finally, he, you know, first, really, what was happening? He was going into liver failure, kidney failure, and then finally heart failure, where fluid backs up into your heart and uh, backs up into your lungs. I'm sorry and causes fluid to be in your lungs uh and as, as well as pleural fluid and that's why we had this this uh, uh we see water uh a sort of a looks what looks like combination of pleural fluid and blood at the back of the of the man of the shroud so um okay awesome awesome yeah thank you so much for, for answering that there so Okay, so so let's kind of get back to the list. And you've kind of given us a lot of great details uh, about the accuracies of the blood flows and what we can tell uh, about the position of the man and that sort of thing. Uh, is there any other further details? So, for, for example, can, can, can we tell from the blood flows on the shroud if it's pre or postmortem blood flows? Is it, you know, venous blood versus other? What, what else can we tell about the blood? Okay, we can... Uh, first of all, can, we can tell that uh, what's postmortem blood. Postmortem blood would be uh, blood that. Let let me put it this way: is uh, looking at this image here, all of these blood marks you see on the arms uh, and so forth, uh, on the on the face and, and the feet and so forth, right here. They uh, they would be blood that occurred. Uh, at the time, basically at the time of death. Uh, the blood, the wound, the side wound, we can't tell when that occurred uh, from just looking at this. It could have occurred during during life as well as death. But uh, but according to this, according to the gospel, it, it occurred after he died. They found him dead. 
but here we can't tell whether it, it in other words we just know that he has a blood flow that's here uh and we know that this included blood uh blood and water because we see that on on the back that blood and water that we see on the back is actually post-mortem blood flow uh that in other words when his body was taken down from the cross uh and uh he, he that blood flowed uh along the side of his uh, arm and and chest and then flowed down his to his to the to the ground uh from his body and uh and flowed underneath the small of his back to the other side uh that's post-mortem blood that that you see uh, also, there's an area at the feet where there seems to be some postmortem blood as well. So that would be postmortem blood. The other blood marks, I uh, would say, are, uh, uh, are are not. They're 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 blood marks that took place at the at the time of death. Okay, and just kind of following up, um, so I've heard some people mention there's a difference between venous versus arterial blood flows do you know what that's about at all or well um you know arterial blood flow flows rather rapidly and uh if you cut an artery uh you're going to bleed to death very quickly okay mm -hmm. uh people who cut their wrists and so forth they sit in a bathtub and they don't they don't take too long to die they cut they take they cut both wrists they're cutting those arteries and uh they they flow out very quickly um the people that were crucifying Jesus were not uh, were, were care very careful not to. Uh, uh, they, they didn't understand. They just knew that there were certain areas that they could go into and uh, not uh, not cause somebody to die very quickly, uh, like the wrists and so forth, uh, to hang them. Uh, they knew that. Uh, they also knew how to kill somebody. If they put a spear and it went through the chest and into his heart or the vessels of his heart, that would kill him very quickly. Okay, so there's a difference between so. Uh, but these people wanted to torture these uh, people were put up on a cross to torture them and give them a slow, miserable death. Uh, so they were uh, careful not to uh, wound them in a way that would bring out arterial blood. That's what that would be, or also large vessels that are uh that are not necessarily arterial uh they uh and of course if you went through the heart that's another story as well uh they die very rapidly so our when you hit arterial blood you you die very rapidly uh what you're seeing here is oozing from uh from wounds that are hitting you know small certainly uh, just tissue itself bleeds when you you know you have capillaries you have you know you start with larger vessels and you go to smaller and smaller vessels you get the capillaries and then you start you see blood flowing uh when you're hitting you can hit some small veins and whatever uh if you hit a if you hit an artery you're going to have pretty fast bleeding uh but generally what you're seeing is you're not seeing arterial blood on this uh body except for possibly uh, the blood from the wound at the side. Gotcha. Okay, awesome. So one thing um, I think it's really important to ask you about is, okay, look, well, how do these blood stains compare to 
art, you know, like medieval artistic depictions of the bloodstains. Um, what's the comparison like? Well, I think that we discussed that earlier when we talked about, the, for example, the blood flows along these arms here, the blood flow an artist would do would be probably a straight stream, which you don't have here. Uh, and uh, the, the consistency of what you're seeing is uh, uh, definitely looks like from a forensic perspective, uh, blood flows that are very real uh, as opposed to what an artist does. Uh, uh, just a painting uh there are there are no actually when i first started this i was a skeptic i told you and i went to see dr ernst kitzinger um uh, who is an expert in uh icons and uh he was at harvard i lived in boston when went to harvard he was about ready to retire and uh so i went to him because i wanted to ask him uh, i said well do you know of any artists that have painted blood marks like this or painted uh, an image like this. And uh, his response was, does it give you a response from an expert that looked at all kinds of photographs for, for many, many years, is that uh, he said, you can look all you want uh, for uh, blood marks or whatever. The shroud image is unique in the world. It doesn't fit into any artistic category. You can look all you want for, uh, for images or, and blood marks uh, that looked like the shroud, but you'll find none. Uh, there's an expert, there's a man who spent a lifetime uh, he, studying uh, photographs and so forth. And uh, he said that he and his crew, a very small group of people, experts around the world, uh, considered the Shroud of Turin absolutely unique uh, from the point of view of art, and that it... Uh, it wasn't the Shroud of Constant. He thought it was the Shroud of Constantinople, and they all did. They all believe this came from Constantinople, from their from their studies and their work. All right. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there awesome. you are. Far there's these, and from a medical perspective, these these do not look like an art's work of art. No, they look like the real thing. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, cool. Well, uh, last but not least, I know you, you've kind of covered a lot about how, how we know the Shroud Man was uh, anatomically accurate in terms of his blood flows and how that translates to his death and that sort of thing. But there are some people who, believe it or not, are pro-Shroud in the sense that they believe it covered Jesus. But they will argue for the Islamic notion of a swoon theory. And they'll say, no, the, the Shroud Man is alive. And supposedly they're medical experts uh, such as Miguel Lorente and, and Bonte. So I wanted to turn it to you and your expertise, uh, Dr. Lavoie. Do you think, what, what do you think? Is there any merit to these claims about a swoon theory and that the shroud man is actually alive? No, no, there's, there's nothing to those. Uh, they, uh, I don't know where they're getting that information from or why they think that because let me, let me be very clear about this. Uh, what we see here are the final blood marks, uh, final blood marks of a man who died from a, uh, from a scourging, uh, crowning of thorns, uh, and, uh, and crucifixion. Uh, he was then, uh, he was dead, uh, when they took him down. Uh, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Uh, they took him down and they put him on this cloth, okay? And then they covered, uh, they put a, 
on one end of this long 14 foot cloth and cover them over with the other end. If, if he had been alive, okay, this would mean that his heart was pumping, okay? Pumping blood. And uh, it would have been pumping blood through the very same wounds that uh, were on him when he was on the cross. And you would have had a man lying there with his heart pumping. Uh, he had wounds all over his body. And those, uh, those wounds would, especially the wrists and the feet and so forth, uh, the chest and, uh, and uh, whatever, and the head wounds, they would have been continually oozing more and more blood. And so you would have ended up with big blotches of blood in these areas if his heart was beating. And you don't have that. You simply have the mirror images of the clots that were formed, that had formed on his body when he died. Is that clear? Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I think that covers all the um, the questions that I had, but let me turn it over to you. Is there anything that I missed that you think is important um, about the Shroud Man from this medical perspective? Well, uh, there is there is one thing uh, you had asked uh, from an anatomical perspective, how do we know he's anatomically accurate? Uh, I'll say that uh, everybody, you know, there's, there's a phenomenal here, there's a phenomena here that I think that we should discuss for a few minutes that I think is very interesting. And I would like to um, uh, go from here to uh, another, uh, uh, Okay, another, oh, excuse me, if I may. Um, let, just let yeah. me know when you have it and I'll bring it up. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, okay, here. Okay, now we just want to do, okay. So uh, there's, there's another aspect. We, the man of the shroud uh, was all the blood marks that we had talked about on the man of the shroud, they actually um, are um, uh, are consistent with a man who died in the crucified position. His body was then taken down from the cross, and he was laid on his back, supine. He was laid on his back, and the other cloth, the end of the cloth, was placed over the front of his body. The blood marks are absolutely consistent with the man who died uh, in the upright position and then was laid out in burial. Okay, do we have that straight? Okay, mm -hmm. that's what we have. However, uh, in the work that I've done, if what's anatomically inconsistent with the man being laid out, there are inconsistencies with a man from the point of view, the blood marks are correct Well, what we just said. But as far as the anatomy of the body, uh, the hair and the body itself, uh, thinking that this man is actually laid out, uh, that the body of this man is laid out, is, is inaccurate. The body of the, this man is not the, what we see here, his body form and hair is not consistent with a man 
who's laid out. Okay. Is that, uh, and so, the, so, yep. so it's the position of the man that I want to talk about for a few minutes. And, uh, uh, I, okay. So what we have, I'm just going to go through a few. We're going to go here. So when you look at this man, you can, uh, from the position, uh, let's just look at, there's other things. I, I'm skipping over things. People can read about a number of things, but we've, uh, we want to shorten things up here a little bit because we've been here for quite a while. But um, there's other things that are inconsistent with a man who is light, laid out. Uh, but they are, they are consistent, not with a man who's laid out, but with a man who is upright. And I'll have to tell you that when I, uh, when I'm going to, what I'm going to say to you is that um, when I uh, first studied the shroud, uh, and I, I came to the point where I really uh, knew enough about it, but I knew that the image was really an image that we couldn't understand uh, and we couldn't reproduce. And I, but there was nothing on this body, on this uh, shroud that ever could convince me that this was the moment of the resurrection because people talk about that. Is this the moment of the resurrection? But there was nothing on there that could convince me that this was the moment of the resurrection, even though I thought uh, the image itself was uh, so unique and, and couldn't be reproduced even today. That did not convince me that it was the moment of the resurrection. But something has convinced me that this is the moment of the resurrection as well. And has to do with the body anatomy and the hair. So if you look at this man, you see that his hair flows right down to his shoulders. And you see that his hair flows right down his back. Now, uh, now, if you look at this young lady, you see her hair flows down. She's upright. And see how his hair flows down. Can you see that? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Then if you look at the back, you get the same kind of situation where the hair flows down. You see? Mm -hmm. Hair flows down. Now, if you go on and you have somebody lie down, you see how the hair, what happens to the hair. Yeah. Okay. It, and so, uh, and believe me, as a physician, how many hundreds of people that come to my office where I had them sitting up in a, you know, people with, I mean, I'm talking about people with long hair, men or women with long hair, uh, that oily hair, dirty hair, whatever hair, if they had long hair, when they lie down, they would, you, you would, it would fall down. Gravity brings it down unless you have it. So, you know, but anyway, it, it falls down. So we, so anyway, before we get into that, so what we have is the hair on the man of the shroud is consistent with really an upright man. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, you're, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just showing you what's there rather than I'm not having it's, it, this is not a discussion or an assumption. It's just obviously what's there. So then if you were, uh, if you followed me into an autopsy room or uh, a morgue or whatever, uh, you would have, and I remember the very first time, and the, the general public doesn't ever see this, 
In fact, I was in my early 20s when I first saw it, and I was, it sort of shocked me, is when you turn over the body of such a person, you find that their, their back and their buttocks and everything are flat because they're lying down. In fact, you take a live person and you lay him, uh, and I'll show you that in a minute, you lay him on glass, you will find that his body is um, uh, flattened in those in those areas so that's that's what a that's what a man looks like when he's flattened out now let me just show you the next this is a photograph not a photograph this is a drawing uh of a man this is a real man it's a drawing i went down to mass art uh i had a wonderful artist and uh we got a candidate uh, that uh that does this work and so uh you see is how his hair flows down here, he's in his in the form of his back. He's standing. He's standing, and you see the form of his back. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so the next slide, we had him lying on glass. You take it. We took a, a large plate of glass, and think in terms of when you look at this image, is you're is you're looking at a man. You're actually as if you're lying on your back. And you have this man above you, and he's lying on glass. You, you get my get my yep. take. Yeah. So you see how his the buttocks is flattened, and the back is flattened, and all of that. And you see, in the gastrics are flattened, whatever. So that's what you see. You see large areas of gray. One, there's we lose form here. Can you see how we lose form? The yeah. form lost because he's lying on glass. You see. Uh and so, uh, and you see how the hair sprawls out and flattens out. Literally, you lose form there as well. See how you just lose the form at the back right there. Yep. It sprays out. Not, not entirely different than this gentleman. The same man. This is the same man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Look at the difference. So just looking at the observation of that, and when we look at the man of the shroud, we see how his hair falls, forms down. We So everybody's so interested in the front of the man, we sort of forget about the back of the man. The back of the man is a very important. It gives us a lot of information and evidence. You see how the hair flows down, consistent with the hair flows down. You see the back, you have form here, and you have form of this man. You don't see large areas of flattening like you do here. Other, if there, if the man were lying down, you would have large areas of flattening like this. Okay, so the inconsistent, the thing that's anatomically inconsistent with a man lying down, are the fact that you don't see these large areas. When you, we're talking about black and white, and and so when you when you, when you look at a cylinder or a, or or a rectangle, rect, cylinder will have different color it'll, it'll range from white to black as opposed and, and you, it'll give you form here we we don't have form we just have one particular gray so we don't have that on the shroud we have a form the man and the form is consistent with an upright man would you say so well um can can i is it okay if i interject i'll, I'll let you finish but I, I do have a couple things to ask you because um, sure, go ahead go ahead I know that, uh, so the way I, I've interpreted it and a lot of pro-shred guys is 
there is that stiffness of the butt. So they'll say he is horizontal, but he's in rigor mortis. Okay. And, and with That's the hair, uh, they'll maybe posit a chin band. So if you wanted to respond to those two things. Um, oh, of course, of course. Sure. Do you think a chin band could cause hair to flow like that? A chin band is going to make any difference? I, I, I don't think so. Look at that. That hair flows very normally down the man's head, just as if, just very normally, just a nice flow of hair. Uh, I don't think uh, you can talk about a chin band. I know the man who actually uh, came, brought up that subject early on, uh, the chin band theory. Uh, we, we don't have any definite proof of a chin band theory at all, uh, but uh, people like to talk about a chin band all the time, but there's no definite proof of a chin band. Uh, okay. uh, can you give me some proof of a chin band? Um, well, I, th I think it's just, uh, it comes more from the frontal image because the, the way the hair goes flowing down at the sides. And I think yeah, the, the, fact that it, the, the, fact, the fact that it goes down to the sides uh, is not, does not necessarily mean there's a chin band. Um, but you, you see it flows, it, it wouldn't have anything to do with the back. So the back, it it's, looks like to me, from what I see, it's in it's in a ponytail. And some people have said the blood. Um, I don't know if you connect it with the sidereum, but the the when they put the sidereum on, they pinned the ponytail to it, and it kind of became encrusted in blood. Do you would that maybe explain the back of the hair at all, or no? No. Okay. No. Uh, no. I think you have to look at what you've got in front of you. You've got hair that seems to flow right down. This is what you have. You can't. You can start making assumptions about all kinds of things, but you've got to look at the reality of what's in front of you. You can't. You can't start making assumptions because you want him lying down. You can't do that. You have to look at what's there. You see hair that flows down. I, I'm just. If you don't want to accept that, that's fine. I, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, the reality is that his hair falls down like this, and you have no large, you don't have gray areas of the back as you would have here. You don't have those large flat areas. So as far as rigor mortis is concerned, uh, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very aware of rigor mortis. And rigor mortis uh, is a, is a, is, is something that affects the muscles. It does not affect the skin nor the fat, which is uh, on top of the muscles. So even if there was rigor mortis, we would still have some flattening because of the skin and fat that is above the, the rigor mortis. But as far as rigor mortis is, rigor mortis peaks at about six hours, and then it starts to dissipate. And by 12 hours, 24 hours. I mean, this is this is gone, and the weight of the body will will uh, break that rigor mortis. You have a 175 pound man. That's going to break that rigor mortis as as the rigor mortis begins. So it gradually grows up, peaks at six hours, then it starts to to dwindle down. And by 20, 24 hours, I mean that's gone. Jesus would have been in the tomb for 36 hours. You you don't have rigor mortis anymore. That's that's really playing a part in 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 that, 
uh, in that situation. So rigor mortis is not, and I have a whole section of talking about rigor mortis and, and so forth in my book, The Shroud of Jesus. You can see it in the, in, uh, you can read in, in references and so forth to rigor mortis. So rigor mortis is not the answer for that. Um, okay. Okay. So then you have, it's interesting because you see the feet and the position of the feet and the feet are crossed. At least definitely not standing. It's as if he's suspended in midair. Uh, it's just an interesting phenomena that you're looking at. Uh, and uh, that's, so you basically, you see, what you see is what you get. It, you can take, you can, if you want to still believe that the man of the shroud is lying down, uh, that's, that's your privilege. Uh, however, the data and the information that we're looking at tells us that this man is not lying down. So it's anatom I think it's anatomically incorrect to say that the body of this man is lying down, but the, it's anatomically correct to say that the body of this man is, uh, which has form, uh, the, because otherwise the form is lost. That form, that's the form you would have if you're lying down, and this is the form you have if you're upright. Uh, so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with gravity. We're dealing with objective visual ex uh, experience here. We're looking at gravity of hair fall, flowing down and the fact that the, the body is, the, uh, has form. Otherwise, it would have no form. Uh, it would be like this if it were lying down. So the body is anatomically correct if he's uh, upright. It's not anatomically correct. Otherwise, he would look more like this if he were lying down. So that's that's my take on on the uh, on uh, the anatomy as far as uh, it's actually seen. Uh, the artist that I work with uh, uh, is in full agreement with what we're talking about, and everyone else who's not biased. I'll tell you that's the we talked about that before. I I had. Uh, and I understand the bias that everybody has. Everybody feels that the man is laid out because, of course, the blood marks are consistent with that. However, the image is not consistent with that. And I had the same bias that everyone else had. I had it for seven years because what I did when I first came back uh, to um, uh, from uh, from uh, Turin when I was. Uh, back in 1978 i think it was 1979 i had i had uh i showed um, all the pictures i had of the shroud uh to and made a presentation to a group of physicians uh in fact frankly the uh, the whole staff of physicians uh, from the hospital that i was in it was a boston hospital and uh so we had a wonderful discussion and uh and of course, I believe the man of the shroud at that time was lying down. And uh, anyway, everyone, everybody left, but one physician who is an orthopedic surgeon, uh, who, and orthopedic surgeons are big on anatomy. They deal with anatomy every day of their lives. And he held back. He did not want anybody to hear what he had to say. So he waited till everybody left. And uh, he said, uh, it came up to me and he said, you know, when I look at this image, 
it looks to me like this man is lifted up as if uh, suspended in midair. In other words, he's not lying down, but he's upright. It's basically what he was telling me. And so I looked at him and I thought, well, what's wrong with this guy? Uh, but I want to be polite and I don't want to tell him that he's really lying down. After all, he's giving me something. But he obviously, you know, he wanted to discuss that with me privately. So I said, uh, I want to thank you very much, doctor. I really, really appreciate that. Of course, he was a fellow that was had a lot of more experience than I was. He was probably 30 years older than I was at the time and had a whole lifetime of dealing with anatomy and bodies. And so uh, I said, uh, so I said, thank you very much. And he left and I just forgot what he had to say. I didn't pay any attention to what he had to say. And for seven years I had, I continued to believe that the man of the shroud was lying down. So I had the same bias that everybody else had. Uh, and, uh, and I lived with that bias and thinking I was absolutely correct until we started doing this work and started realizing that the body is not consistent with a man who's lying down. Uh, rig uh, rigor mortis was not the answer. Uh, as I mentioned to you of fat and skin, uh, the, it would flatten out anyway. Parts of the body would still flatten out. Uh, plus the rigor mortis doesn't uh, dissipates over a period of time and the, the weight of the body would break that certainly by 36 hours, there would be no rigor mortis at all. Um, so the, uh, so I, I understand the, the bias and I, and I'm sympathetic with it. And I think, uh, but I have to be honest and, uh, very, and, uh, to tell it the way it is. So we have a man who's upright, uh, as opposed to lying down, but the blood marks are consistent with a man who is lying down. So that's the thing that's really so remarkable about the shroud. Uh, this sort of gives you uh, a clue or evidence that shows that uh, this is likely the moment of the resurrection. Awesome. Uh, so anyway, that, maybe we can end there. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, uh, uh, that was a great job and, and that sort of thing. I, I think it's really important to have your position out there uh, because a lot of pro shroud people maybe think that there is only one position. He was lying down in that supine position, but you're saying no, the supernatural miracle involved his body being upright at the time of image encodation and stuff like that. So that's an interesting perspective. And I think you've given a very interesting argument that, uh, basically kind of saying, if you're saying it is horizontal, that's ad hoc because you have to employ certain not non-evidenced assumptions, whereas yours is the simpler hypothesis. So that's something I haven't considered before. So that, yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. Yeah, well, it's just, the, it's just a matter of observation. And, and most of what we do in life in medicine, I mean, is observation. And, uh, and that's good medicine because of, of what you see and what you, what you do and what you work with. And uh, I had to, I, I, I guess I have the benefit as a physician that if I think that something's, if I'm in a patient's room and a patient, and I think that this patient has a particular diagnosis, I uh, will, um, uh, <clears throat> and I find the patient is not doing well I'm going to have to change my mind and start looking for something else, uh, or or and and if I don't know what it is, I better bring other docs in 
to help me out because this patient's going to die. So I have to. So we have to always be ready to change our minds. Uh, we, you know, instead instead of just sticking with with the original diagnosis uh, and and letting the patient die, it's better to bring. You have to have that humility to to decide that you better bring some other people in because you want to be sure this you do everything you can for that patient. One of the things I think from uh, from the point of view of my book and the discovery of the upright man has caused me to really pursue the study of the shroud from the point of view of the Gospel of John. We haven't got any time to get into that. Uh, we have, and there's, of course, there's a lot more in the book with regard to the forensics that we never we never even touched on. But uh, anybody who is interested in the forensics certainly will find it in my new book, uh, The Shroud of Jesus. Uh, and which is uh, published by Sophia uh, Institute Press. And also um, uh, the last six chapters of the book are on the Gospel of John. And there's a, a very exciting story that's revealed uh, new, new insights with regard to the Gospel of John from the point of view of the upright man of the shroud. Uh, and I invite uh, anyone who's interested in following and learning about that uh, to, to get the book. Uh, and it's been uh, the book has been um, uh, well endorsed, uh, uh, endorsed by, uh, for example, Scott Hahn, who is a, uh, a, a real biblical scholar, Mike Aquilina, uh, another scholar, uh, Father Rocky, who's really actually Father Francis Hoffman of Revel Relevant Radio. Uh, beautiful people have endorsed the book. So. I think that uh, it's a, it's worth a read, uh, and people will discover some wonderful things about the Gospel of John, as well as about the Shroud of Turin, in, in when they read about the uh, Shroud of Jesus, and it is the it is the Shroud of Jesus. Thank you very much for allowing me to be with you, uh, and giving me all this time. No problem. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you for for being on and sharing the knowledge. I, I hope you enjoyed your time on on your end there. I did very much. Excellent. <laughs> it was great Excellent. To be with you. I want to, one of the things I want to say to you is that I feel that it's wonderful and remarkable that you do this wonderful work in uh, in uh, through faith that you want to bring the faith to the public. It's it's a lot of hard work that you do a lot of time you have to put in, a lot of patience and so forth. And I, I think it's wonderful that you, you and, and I congratulate you and I think, and I admire you for, for what you're doing. Uh, and, uh, and, I, uh, and also I admire your wonderful audience for uh, seeking the truth through the work that you're doing. Awesome. God bless. Thank you so much. Yeah, God bless you as well. And that means a lot to me. And and obviously, uh, my audience is always interested and they, they like getting different perspectives and, you know, both skeptics and pro shroud and they're looking for the truth at the end of the day. So thank you so much. And yeah, have a great week, everybody. And Merry Christmas to everyone as well. Merry Christmas. All right.